The OPEC cartel civil war continues to rage on. The U.S. repo market showcases very crucial telltale signs of a recession. And finally, an official impeachment inquiry is launched against Trump. All of this and more. Welcome to World Wild Economy. Right, so plenty of things to get to today, uh, partly because of the kind of, let's say, required catch-up due to my absence last week. I was ill and I was actually relocated from Poland when I was working the PwC uh, during the summer, but uh, I'm back to going to back to university in the UK now. Anyways, but also mainly because of a lot of crazy things have happened this week, you know, essentially over the past two uh, crucial things, uh, such events, such as kind of the Fed overnight repo market liquidity crunch, as some people like to call it, and others are, you know, is what is everything that I'll be explaining in today's episode, let's just say. So you'll know what they are, how they work, like the repo market, and what exactly it is that has happened recently. And something, you know, what are these things that are genuinely noteworthy for investors and others interested? Right, so uh, earlier in September, we saw a huge spike in the uh, overnight repo market in the US, uh, wherein the New York Fed actually had to inject money into the piping of the US economy, uh, that is obviously the monetary system, uh, to prevent a liquidity crisis. So essentially, the overnight repo market is essentially just a market uh, for banks and financial institutions to take part in interbank uh, lending. For very very short period borrowing, actually just just one day uh, to really fuel their activities, uh, etc. Whatever that might be. So essentially, the liquidity crunch came at a time when the demand for funds far exceeded the current supply of funds, and essentially banks willing to lend their cash. So also tax payments are actually coming up, and banks which were starved for cash, uh, you know, really took up high interest rate or you know high repo rate uh, deals. As a result, I mean payments had to be made. Um, you know, the demand for these funds was quite inelastic to say the least. Uh, essentially, the repo, the median repo rate actually during the time shot up to 5.25%. So essentially, the kind of average rate uh, things or you know um, loans were being borrowed out at or borrowed uh, borrowed at essentially from the previous levels of around two percent. Now that was kind of what the overnight repo rate was uh, at normal levels per se. Right, so it actually reached up heights of around 9%, the repo rates, and actually a certain loan valued at 12 billion US dollars was given at a repo rate of 9%. So obviously, as you can see, some banks were starved for cash. Uh, there was no way uh, around this and they were essentially willing, you know, willing or not willing, they had to pay whatever the interest rate was, whatever the other side was willing to settle for. Anyways, uh, the New York Fed, or essentially now the kind of whole Fed uh, central bank, attempted to unclog the monetary piping, let's say, of its economy by conducting some open market uh, operations. The terminology really varies as, you know, quantitative easing essentially applies a slowing or weakening of the economy, uh, which isn't something the Fed wants to promote necessarily. Uh, but nevertheless, soon after the uh, liquidity crunch, the New York Fed injected uh, around, it was 75 billion US dollars into our economy. Um, however, the actual submitted requests for funds, uh, you can say, uh, was 80 billion US dollars. Uh, banks were willing to sell uh, more than uh, what the central bank was willing to purchase at that specific time. Anyways, until ten, until now, sorry, uh, the Fed has conducted, uh, continued to conduct open market operations, now uh, currently totaling in just a few weeks, I think like two weeks potentially, totaling 162 billion US dollars uh, and will continue to do so, as it said in its recent FOMC meeting, wherein it was announced that the Fed will be expanding its balance sheet, quote-unquote. Essentially, this brings us on to the next topic, 
in this. And in, in my opinion, this is very clearly QE, you know, quantitative easing and uh, sense of expansionary monetary policy, uh, this kind of purchasing of certain assets and securities by the central bank and therefore injecting uh, money into the um, monetary system, in our economy, let's say. So the Fed uh, somewhat actually fully denies this, but nevertheless, um, in these situations, you really need to follow the money. You want to look at people's actions, banks' actions, and not just what they say. You know, they might say, oh, it's not really quantitative easing, we're just expanding the balance sheet. But until you look at uh, what they're actually doing with the money, what's, what's happening, uh, that's when you really understand what's going on. And obviously, the Fed doesn't really want to scare anyone, uh, by saying, you know, quantitative easing, we need to cut rates, uh, more monetary supply, uh, money supply in the system because, you know, there's a liquidity crisis, quite quite literally. Anyways, they won't say that. You, you need to follow the money. You need to look closely and understand what's going on. I think that's kind of why I'm here as well. I've been studying this topic for a bit now and um, looking at what's really going on. Some great articles on zerohedge.com about this, actually. It takes a, a certain perspective on things, um, you know, so it's good to look at the mainstream media, see, see what's happening. So, some mainstream media news outlets in the US, like CNN, they're usually a bit more left-leaning. So when you look at Zero Hedge, which is more on the right side, uh, on the right wing, uh, you kind of get a, let's say, more holistic look, or at least two different opinions you can decide for yourself. Uh, but yeah, anyways, uh, the, Fed, the Fed's balance sheet, for those of you who don't know, is uh, you know like that of any other normal business. So essentially, it contains uh, both assets and liabilities. That's what a balance sheet is made out of. And essentially, its assets, for the most part, which is very important in this, are you know government securities, gold, uh, es essentially anything that the Fed has to pay money for, right? It pays for whatever securities and it puts them on it there. Uh, kind of balance sheet that's holding whatever securities from whatever businesses, whatever bonds, etc. It's paid out money, and that paid out money goes into the uh, monetary system as money supply in our economy. Right, so when they uh, so-called, you know, expand their balance sheet, uh, what the Fed actually does it is it uh, gives out loans to uh, banks. They buy out their securities, whatever the kind of bank is uh, offering to sell, and the central bank therefore receives the you know quote unquote asset, funnily enough, and the whole kind of circular flow of income gets you know increased money supply, like I said, and <clears throat> sorry, and with a greater monetary supply, uh, supply of money, interest rates such as the repo rate and federal funds, uh, federal fund rates fall. So it's important to understand that the central bank doesn't simply set an interest rate and people conduct their operations based on that solely, you know, on that one specific um, distinct rate. The central bank actually sets a certain range, range or a benchmark within which the they're willing to let the market forces of you know supply and demand for these funds for the for, for money quite literally uh, kind of. Uh, let's say, oscillate within, uh, you can say. Anyways, so before the most recent cut in September, they had a meeting just, I believe, 10 days ago or like, you know, two weeks ago, whatever. Uh, so essentially before the most recent cut in September, uh, they had a range of, for the federal funds rate, between 2 and 2.25% and uh, something around the 2% mark on the overnight uh, repo rate, if, I, if I'm correct. Anyways, during this liquidity crunch, the starved banks... Uh, were lending or borrowing money in you know in the terms of the market forces of supply and demand. So even though there's a benchmark of whatever the hell uh, the central bank sets, 
um, these financial institutions and banks are just going to get their hands on whatever they can. Like I said, 12 billion US dollars worth of loan or loans, I'm not really sure, uh, went at 9%. So even though the benchmark is much lower and the accepted kind of um, range is much lower, uh, well, the banks just didn't care, right? Businesses, uh, business had to be done as usual, taxes had to be paid, uh, whatever was the reason might have been. The reason which Exactly. We, we won't really know. We won't know what causes crazy liquidity crunch, wherein now the federal uh, federal bank or central bank, sorry, has now given out, essentially given out, uh, you know, increased their monetary supply by 162. They've purchased 162 billion worth of uh, securities, potentially bad debt. Who really knows? These banks, if they're, you know, whatever banks need that, that amount of money, uh, people really need to find out um, because right now we're misinformed uninformed or misinformed you know it really depends anyways the money demand during this crunch was clearly uh, much higher than the supply of loanable funds and you know so the rates spiked the federal funds rate had also gone five basis points uh, higher out of its range uh, so essentially uh, like i said the range was up to 2.25 percent at the time and some loans were made at 2.3 percent so it's obviously out of their range and therefore the central bank uh, in the meeting in September, cut the rates, increasing the, they've increased the money supply, and they're looking at more open market operations, expanding their balance sheet, uh, like I said. So they lowered it by 25 basis points. Currently, the range is at 1.75% to 2%. And um, yeah, like I said, they're just quite simply expanding their balance sheet, uh, essentially, uh, I'll get onto that in a sec, but yeah, here's the cash. Here's really what I want to talk about, and here's what really people don't understand uh, about their central banks, the activities of their central banks, and what they're actually doing. So the central bank, uh, the central bank can essentially print an unlimited amount of money, right? So it can continue to expand its balance sheet to essentially an unlimited point, right? It can keep printing, and it can therefore keep buying, purchasing securities, gold, whatever, mortgage-backed securities. That's that's a big part of their balance uh, balance sheet at the moment. You can actually have a look at their balance sheet online. The one I looked at Investopedia earlier, its latest info is um, actually not much. It's not too recent, but Bloomberg certainly provides it. Uh, nevertheless, right, so we can keep expanding its balance sheet to, uh, in theory, unlimited amount. Essentially, what we're really looking at is that banks, not the central bank, just normal, you know, banks and institutions, they don't really care about their liquidity problems. You know, low interest rates have been killing their business, quite literally. Uh, some, you know, some banks are clearly failing to acquire the funds for their operations, hence the liquidity crunch. But in the end, they know that the central bank will just come with their printed money, they'll, you know, buy out their securities, probably poor quality bonds and take on the central bank, they will take on the horrible loans from these banks and the banks will be left without a problem, right? That, that's that, that's what's happening right now, quite, quite literally. That's what recently happened. And because for the current term, uh, they know that the central bank will do everything in their power, not to let anyone go bankrupt. They don't want another financial collapse. So that's why, um, you know, the central bank keeps printing money and expanding their balance sheet per se. Essentially, there'll, t- there'll come a time where the central bank just won't be able to do that. That's what we call a liquidity crisis, you know, maybe a recession. When one when one bank, sorry, will be chosen to essentially take on all the bad debt and not be given any liquidity injections, and, you know, they won't be accepted for any of their purchases and essentially business, you can say, with the central bank, and it will fail. Average investors will lose money. Pension funds, most importantly, uh, who take on riskier bonds as a result from these low interest rates and yields, whilst, you know, they still have to achieve their set returns, uh, that they will be hit hard, right? So in the previous recession, for example, 
U.S. pension funds saw their value fall by 26%, right, as a result of having to undertake these riskier investments uh, due to the low interest rates to reach their goals, right? Pension funds get given certain uh, goals for their returns, and they have to meet that, right? And how do you meet that? Well, you take on riskier debt when, uh, or riskier kind of uh, bonds or whatever, riskier investments, when normal government bonds have like a negative yield. That, that's what's really happening now in many countries, I think, aside from, I mean, it depends what what bond you look at, essentially, but in many countries, that's what's happening. Right, just to kind of um, put that in perspective, like I said, the US pension funds uh, lost uh, 26% worth of value, um, this is essentially a loss, or it was a loss, sorry, back then in the last recession of 3.5 trillion US dollars, trillion, but trillions of US dollars in money just evaporated, right? It's pretty horrifying, especially since they're pension funds, I, I guess, I mean, it, it, it depends. Anyways, money evaporated, that's kind of the point, right? So essentially the weighted average for the real investment returns of OECD pension funds, Right, so that's for developed countries, a certain group of them, in 2008 was a loss on the you know negative 23%. The worst of pension funds were actually the Irish. They lost nearly 38%. Right, it's uh, it's astonishing. Um, the, the actions currently undertaken by our central bank are allowing for the operation of banks with bad debt because you know they, they know that the central bank will just continue to print money. And essentially, to continue to keep these banks afloat, right? They'll purchase their securities, all that kind of stuff, until the central bank just chooses to allow one to go bankrupt when you know there's too much bad debt, and it will inevitably, inevitably, sorry, uh, lead to some recession, some liquidity crisis, some financial collapse, and you know all of this, all of this information, it's all from a small hiccup in the overnight repo market. You know its implications, what it means, how it works, and. Because of all that, what's happening? Well, it's a you know it's important to keep your eyes open because these hiccups they come and go. People, no one's talking about this anymore. Um, but yeah, anyways, uh, now we can move on to the uh, OPEC cartel and oil markets. So very recently, I posted uh, my latest column, which was the OPEC cartel civil war. So essentially, uh, what's been happening is uh, this this is all stemming back from the Saudi Aramco oil facility uh, drone attacks. And essentially, right now, uh, they're recuperating Saudi Aramco facilities, and kind of the global trade talks that's been happening at the moment have soothed oil prices down from their recent hiccup. Again, like I said, intraday trading uh, after the attack went up to twenty percent on some uh, oil, on some oil benchmarks. Essentially, like the Brent, you know, there's different oil benchmarks like the Brent, sorry, or the WTI, Western Texas Intermediate. Anyways, uh, Saudi's oil operations are actually expected to come back at 11 million barrels per day, up from 9.8 million barrels per day pre-attack. And essentially, uh, both uh, Brent and WTI or, you know, different benchmarks, they continue to trade with a risk premium, um, but essentially at a lower Brent uh, WTI futures spread. Essentially, the futures spread is the difference in prices between the futures of uh, Brent and WTI. Futures are contracts based on how people think uh, the prices will be in the future for these uh, oil benchmarks, essentially, or oil on these benchmarks. Uh, so the spread is currently coming down to around $5 per barrel uh, difference, you know, in the two benchmarks from recent highs of 7.36 even. Um, but uh, anyways, what I really want to get on to talk about is essentially kind of the oil market 
the real turbulence and the evolution of competition in the oil market as I'm seeing it right now. And it all stems kind of back to the falling demand for oil in developed nations such as the US, followed by kind of the increase, really high increase in oil production in the US from uh, actually subsequent to the US's shale oil boom in the 2000s. Uh, and essentially, like I said, the decreasing oil demand there, which is turning a long-time consumer into a hard competitor, the US, uh, in a very short time frame. So after being a net importer of oil uh, and essentially a big client for the Middle East, the US is actually set to become the main competitor uh, in 2021, or at least in 2021, it's uh, it's it's uh, set to be become sorry a net oil exporter. Right, so obviously in the oil market, you've got plenty of clients in the U.S. Now the U.S. is trying to serve its own essentially clients, and soon it will start uh, selling cheaper oil as um, the Western Texas Intermediate actually trades lower than the Brent. Brent, much of which uh, comes from the Middle East, WTI uh, looks at landlocked areas, much of which is in the U.S. Essentially, they're in competition. So, yeah, essentially, which, which again, like I said, is trading at uh, currently five dollars uh, per barrel less the WTI in respect to Brent. So, incre- uh, the US uh, increasing US domestic oversupply of oil alongside a weakened demand, like I said, in developing countries, also leads to falling oil prices. Right, meaning which we can meaning we can sorry expect a further increase, or you know w- w- what I think will happen, a further increase in the Brent WTI spread in the future. That's going to be important later on, or it's just important to you know get an understanding of it, right? So what does it mean? Cheaper US oil, right, WTI versus Brent, also allows for greater market flexibility. Uh, another way of really saying that OPEC has begun to lose its market power, you know, its dominance and significance, right? It's, a, it's OPEC is a cartel, a group of countries which try and keep prices or, you know, maintain high oil prices so they can benefit from it. But cartels can only do that when they've got market power, which they're, they've been beginning to lose. Anyways, uh, this kind of sheds a new light on the Saudi Aramco attacks, right? Who was behind this, for what reason, and what really happens next? Uh, so I kind of came up with some case scenarios, essentially for these puzzling questions. You can really have a look at my blog online, investingintellect.com. I've got a stupid amount of graphs, uh, diagrams, some cool information, which really show you how, um, kind of really aiding my analysis, which I'm going to go on to now. Anyways, OPEX market share has actually been falling for three years straight. So, um not so long ago, OPEC's uh, share of global oil supply essentially came uh, was at around 35%, just on the 35% August 2016. Now it currently sits at uh, 30% around. So essentially, you know, new members joining the OPEC and appearing on the global market, essentially, so that's the US, for example, have contributed to OPEC's market share standing at just 30%. You know, there's less room for dominant players like Saudi and Iran in OPEC, and it really started to push each other out of the kind of ever-shrinking OPEC slice of the market, you could say, which um, actually Saudi takes most of it for themselves. Anyways, what does this mean? Right, case scenario one, what happened, the attack, you know, who was behind the attacks or who really benefits. My point, case scenario one, is that there may be motive for another OPEC competitor to knock Saudi out from their kind of market position in oil exporting. You know, for example, Iran's economy heavily relies on oil and gas exports, which actually account for 82% of Iran's export revenues. And such Middle Eastern country is actually 
you know, they're really not primed for progressive change, like actively diverting energy consumption and production to quote-unquote greener uh, sources, sorry, and would rather keep business and trade as it is. Just keep oil trading, keep getting the money from it, keep oil prices high, etc., etc. A drone attack on Saudi Aramco's facilities, which accounted for around, it was 50% of national output, really harms the government's revenues. It really attacks the political kind of stability uh, of Saudi, as well as Saudi Aramco's IPO. Right, wherein actually the Saudi government has been pressuring wealthy families uh, to buy into. They've been freezing their assets, or you know, freezing the assets of uh, wealthy Saudi families until they buy into it. Essentially, one of the many signs that the two trillion dollar valuation sought after by Saudis for the Saudi Aramco. Uh, company is unrealistic to say the least. Essentially, uh, this actually also puts a strain on uh, American investment banks' relations with the Saudi business sector, right? Another impact, and it really tests their morals in the Saudi Aramco IPO, which uh, sadly at the moment seems too lucrative to pass up on, right? It's meant to be the world's biggest IPO, stupid amount of money involved. Anyways, uh, nevertheless, aside from the kind of international and business relation problems, such an attack on Saudi's oil production facilities raises oil prices and revenues in the short term uh, due to people's questioning on the potential for repeat drone attacks and Saudi's questionable ability uh, for sustained long-term oil production, right? If these, you know, who's to say that these drone attacks won't keep on happening or, you know, the, the potential... Uh, is that it could still keep happening, but it's hard to really factor that into the valuation of a firm. You know, there's a lot of uh, problems with this. How often will they happen? Will they, you know, increase in severity? Who knows? Anyways, what this kind of causes is that leading importers of Saudi oil, it, it kind of causes them to look for suppliers other than Saudi Arabia, right? There's a chance for it. But within a similar kind of geographical position, maybe to uh, minimize the changes in transport, logistics, and costs, you know, maintaining the kind of Brent crude benchmark whilst forgoing Saudi Arabia's own geopolitical concerns, right? So essentially, the Brent crude benchmark is used by Middle Eastern countries to trade on it. It essentially serves locations wherein oil is exported from uh, from the sea or, you know, seashores, etc. Whereas the WTR, like I said, landlocked areas. So that's a kind of key difference. And with Middle Eastern countries, they all trade on Brent crude, like I already said. And as you, uh, as you kind of can imagine, it maybe is a bit less hassle for a importer of Saudi oil to just switch to a nearby country still, you know, trading on the same benchmark, similar geographical location, uh, therefore transport logistics, uh, that they can maintain similar costs. Anyways, that's the first case scenario. Second case scenario that I thought of is a culprit that is a non-open competitor, right? So in 2018, Saudi accounted for 16.1% of the world's oil exports, an attack actually hindering the Kingspin uh, reputation. It really allows for competitors to take over Saudi's lucrative, really lucrative, obviously, oil trade deals between countries like China. China is the world's largest oil importer, much of you know which comes from Saudi, whose oil demand is, you know, China's uh, oil demand is set to grow further in future years. Um much like the rest of Southeast Asia, for that matter, and other developing countries. Right, so much like the previous scenario, like I mentioned, Saudi Aramco attacks uh, create real uncertainty in the kind of Saudi or, you know, for that matter, global oil supply, which adds on a risk premium onto oil prices and leaves Saudi importers considering potentially safer supplies of oil to fuel their economic expansion or expansions, right? If you look at the whole region, sorry. 
Right. So in developing countries such as China or India, uh, the primary question in regards to energy supply is, um, is there enough energy? Right. The price isn't nearly as important as whether or not energy supply is meeting the ever-growing demand. And on this basis, uh, Saudi Arabia has become a less favorable option, especially if drone attacks continue. Right. So why non-OPEC? Right. That's kind of why I ask myself, who... What's the difference between OPEC and non-OPEC, right? Well, historically, OPEC supply disruptions have been of a higher force uh, to their non-OPEC counterparts, which have seen a downtrend, actually. Non-OPEC um, supply disruptions have actually seen a downtrend in their severity and therefore can be seen as a safer oil supplier. So actually, on my article, I've got a graph showcasing this. So the kind of OPEC... Um, Actually, let's start with non-OPEC. So the non-OPEC supply disruptions on average have been recently half a million barrels a day, right? That, that's a kind of supply disruption. So let's say a loss in supply, half, uh, potentially even much less. Whereas the OPEC uh, has been of heights of up to, it's been around three, right? Two, two and a half million barrels a day. So that's five to six times more severe than their non-OPEC counterparts, right? That's a big, big difference. So OPEC's mission of stabilizing uh, the kind of oil markets is really nonsensical when compared with the reality. As you can just see, the supply disruptions are crazy. And by nature, you know, a cartel really wishes to unify supply and keep prices high. So essentially, OPEC's falling market power actually continues to prove that task more difficult. So as you can see, when you're looking at OPEC versus non-OPEC suppliers, non-OPEC has the edge in the fact that they can be considered, based on this data, a safer, quote-unquote, safer uh, choice of supplier, essentially, right? So who else benefits? Well, uh, the OPEC Plus agreement, uh, headlined by Saudi and Russia, uh, actually tried, to, they limited oil supply by 1.2 million barrels a day to increase, uh, essentially increase and maintain higher oil prices, right, through the lower supply. So the agreement was actually extended earlier this year, something Iran was not found of. Russia's, just uh, note, they're outside of, uh, they're non-OPEC, right? So that's why it's called OPEC Plus. Nevertheless, a beneficiary of lower oil supply, higher prices, and Saudi's problematic situation is Russia, and non-OPEC competitor, like I just said. Russia's falling market share, uh, in you know, percentage-wise, in the oil market acts as a motive uh, to regain the ground lost to Saudi Arabia over the past few years. In addition, uh, the U.S. is also in a position of benefit, right? I mean, you can name hundreds of countries. People benefit in a crazy different amount of ways. But essentially, uh, these are kind of the main ones which are thought of, right? So the US is also in a position of benefit, like I just said, uh, becoming a major player in the oil market from the, you know, kind of net oil importer it once was. Essentially, since much of the US oil is extracted in landlocked areas, uh, the price is based off the WTI benchmark, like I said, in contrast to obviously the Brent crude index used to actually price two thirds of the world's oil supply. And it's typically, like I said, produced kind of in the, uh, near the sea whereby oil transportation costs are lower and oil facilities are actually more prone to attacks. Essentially, you know, it leaves Brent crude producers more prone to drone attacks due to their easier accessibility. Right. So the Brent uh, WTI price spread actually showcases the kind of comparative uh, supply and demand sentiments uh, between Middle Eastern, you know, Brent crude and American WTI oil uh, supplies. A higher spread uh, means that a higher means a higher price differential between the crude oils, right? That, that's in essence what it means. Drone attacks and supply disruptions outside of the U.S. will have a larger impact on Brent crude, right, where, where the strike happens, leading to a growing uh, Brent WTI price spread, increasing the attractiveness of uh, U.S. oil traded on WTI, right? What does the attractiveness mean? Well, essentially, 
the Brent WTI spread actually enjoys a positive correlation with US oil exports. And if you go on my blog, investingintellect.com, you'll actually be able to see this. So essentially, as the spread per barrel increases uh, between the Brent and WTI, so do uh, US crude oil exports. So essentially, a positive spread, like I said, is the additional dollars per barrel importers have to pay for Brent crude as opposed to WTI, right? So uh, the bigger the spread, the cheaper WTI appears in opposed to Brent, uh, right? Price obviously factors into the buying decisions and quantities of uh, different importers. Anyways, this may be an incentive for Saudi oil importers such as China uh, to switch to supplies based on two factors, right? Cheaper and steadier oil supply, as well as China specifically leverage in trade and negotiations with the US. This is a big point. Really, really happy that, you know, I kind of read, read somewhere about this. I don't remember. Maybe I watched something. Anyways, it's important. China currently has tariffs on US shale oil, right? However, the Saudi Aramco attack and oil supply endangerment may persuade China to consider lowering uh, lowering the tariffs essentially in an attempt to obviously reach a consensus with the US on trade, which is slowing global trade while securing a cheaper and really more secure supply of oil. It's a win win situation, really, well, at least for you know uh, the US and China. Anyways, uh, th this is kind of my bet on the oil market. I hope you uh, learn something from these kind of case scenarios. Uh, you can, like I said, read more, have a look at this on my blog, investingintellect.com. I really hope I brought a different perspective potentially uh, to this whole case scenario. And the last thing I just really want, quickly wanted to talk about was the impeachment inquiry uh, on Trump's obviously over the past three years. We've heard all talks about this impeachment. It's caused volatility, stress, political uncertainty. But now uh, Nancy Pelosi of the Democratic Party has launched an official impeachment inquiry. And I don't want to comment too much about it. It's just very important for, you know, obviously reasons of po politics, economics. But it could be because, you know, elections are coming up. It's essentially like a now or never situation. Uh, there, there was some supposed Ukraine scandal between uh, Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president. However, I don't want to give too much commentary on this. Uh, you know, politics is a whole different topic on its own. And um, like I said, you know, elections are coming up. Um, they don't want Trump to win. Uh, they've obviously think he's done something wrong, I believe. And uh, it will be interesting to see uh, where this goes. Anyways, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, check out Investing Intellect, doc, <laughs> Investing Intellect and World Wild Economy at investingintellect.com. You can check me out on Instagram. Email me. Uh, we can have a chat. I hope you have a great day. I hope this has been of some use to you. Uh, have a great week. Goodbye.